Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, the podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas of recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Also, this podcast brings to you some of the very recent research that has been published by scholars around the globe. And in doing this podcast, we hope that it gives readers to the, to the, to the article an insight into what the author's thoughts are. It also gives some insights into the background and ongoing work that the author is undertaking. Today's, in today's podcast, I'd like to introduce you to Ravati Pandya. Ravati is in Bangalore, India at the moment, and her paper, Rendering, Rendering Land Touristifiable, Ecotourism and Land Use Change was published in Tourism Geographies on the 21st of April, 2022. So it's still very much hot off the press. Ravati, are you there? Welcome to the Tourism Geographies podcast. Thank you so much, Joseph, for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, well, congratulations on, on, on getting this done. For, for listeners, this work that was published by Ravati and her colleagues, Hari Shankadev, Nitin D. Rye and Robert Fletcher from Wageningen University is a very important piece because it talks about land and it talks about how ecotourism, uh, normally presented as something that is a positive, uh, impacts land use change. And all, all of those changes aren't necessarily productive, as we will hear from Ravati. So when we, uh, when we invited Ravati to do this podcast, we asked Ravati a number of questions in, and in her preparation, she will address some of the things that we have asked her to do. So in the first instance, Ravati, welcome once again. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you now? Thanks. Um, I'm based in Bangalore, India. So I'm currently a faculty in the School of Development at the Azim Premji University. Prior to this, I was completing my PhD. And before that, since about 2011, I have been working in India on um, human dimensions of conservation. And I've been working with community-based national and international organizations, so largely practitioner based approach to community rights and forest rights access for people living inside forests and people impacted by conservation policies. And so that's that's my background and I also have an interdisciplinary background so I try and use that for my research and practice throughout um, since 2011. Okay. Now, one thing about you, Ravati, which I think is, is is excellent template for PhD students generally, I understand you were a practitioner before you started your PhD, and I wonder how that positioned you when you started your research. Yes, so I do come from many years of practice and work with organizations, so I think that that gave me a very good grounded understanding of context and contextual differences also and also the realities of fieldwork which may seem something that's secondary but actually is uh, pretty significant um, not just in practice but also obviously in a PhD doctoral research and so it it actually did add immense value um, to my doctoral research and also the kind of networks that were built and to have a kind of have a sense of professional work in the conservation field and then shifting to something that's 
purely research based that of course has its challenges but it it does contribute um immensely to the understanding of lived experiences and understanding of complexities on the ground which i have worked through with different organizations with communities as well as with government officials as well so it it does actually render a lot of just just a very good grounded understanding and i think it it's it's really important to have that um at least it benefited me immensely as well yes no question and i think as as well as having that background and having a solid supervision team behind you i would have no doubt helped definitely absolutely i mean this there's been constant support and also you know critical and uh, helpful challenging my questions um so i think having bram nitin and rob as my supervisors have has been immensely valuable and and there's also been a nice mix of practice and research based backgrounds amongst them so i think and different contextual realities so i think that really does contribute a lot of wealth to the process and they also allowed for a lot of flexibility and um, freedom for me to explore these questions that may or may not overlap with things that they have researched on so i think that that also added a lot of value to the process and a lot of learning um and so that's it's been an Im- immense learning experience also working with them and um a lot of support as well co-authoring um with them on this paper has been really amazing well congratulations to you again on uh, on the um conferral of your phd and congratulations to the supervision team now let's get to the paper itself that you published with tourism geographies can you provide a a brief background to the study for for listeners yes so the study is part of uh, my phd research where the broader question i was examining was the local responses to ecotourism at corbett tiger reserve in uttarakhand state in northern india and corbett tiger reserve is one of the first tiger reserves in india which is a protected area which a very solid fences and fines approach um to conservation ecotourism in that context has been also a very has had a contentious history so to speak in relation to that for this paper the question of land um and the question of land use change was very evident as i was um doing field work and so it's something that kept in my face and so it was important to understand how as a way of responding to ecotourism and the way of responding to different types of tourism in this context how are people negotiating changes or adapting to changes and in that process focusing on land use change land use diversification was uh, something that was inevitable and very difficult to avoid and so that that's the broader background to this study more specifically we wanted to also examine how land use change and livelihood diversification takes place in a rural context as well so there's it it definitely is a conservation protected area context but there's there's rural realities of of course aspirations there's agrarian subsistence agriculture happening um and it comes with its own histories as well so it all of that put together was important to actually unpack in this context and as a background to this paper that's that's a broader insight to it 
Thank you, Ravati. What what struck me but most at, at the at the outset of the paper, you say this. Ecotourism is widely promoted as a win-win solution for resource conservation and local people dependent on those resources. However, in many cases, ecotourism development instead exacerbates structural violence, unequal power relations, and negative ecological impacts, contradicting its eco-framing. And that's really a, um, a key framing of this paper that I think whoever, uh, students and, and researchers listening to this podcast should, uh, should take away. What was the key question you were trying to answer in this work? Yes, so in, in we also built on uh, Tanya Lee's very influential paper, which is rendering, rendering Land Investable, where we draw from that and um, our analysis is rendering land touristifiable. So our study was centered on the question of what are the ecotourism and rural dynamics that actually render land touristifiable and with what consequences for rural livelihoods. And you did that very well indeed. So in, in terms of, if, if, uh, if I can ask this question as well, in terms of your field work and, and data collection, which is important to many researchers, um, particularly PhD candidates, how did you go about collecting and, and, and structuring your fieldwork? The fieldwork is grounded or influenced through a very post-structuralist political ecology lens um, where one recognizes that social life is influenced by discursive and material structures, but that also that people are aware of these structural impositions, so to speak, and you know, how are they actually negotiating and adapting to those processes that are taking place? And in the process, are they expressing agency? So that was a broader lens. In terms of the practicality, um, I worked with Hari for my field work, and it was very important to actually have that collaboration because of his uh, local knowledge and he's based out of the local town there and his networks as well. So we conducted uh, semi-structured uh, interviews and this was qualitative research process as well. So there was a lot of participant observation as well. I was based in one of the villages, which is part of this study as well. So being able to live there, being able to contextually be embedded uh, in the daily life also helped a lot to to understand the day-to-day, -day, but also the impacts of larger processes as I was clearly an outsider coming in there. And there was also a lot of use of active interviews. And this is something that I found extremely helpful in the process um, of collecting data. And active interviews are essentially um, interviews where which resemble everyday con conversations and allow for questions to, you know, tap into an understanding of social reality through emotional accounts as well as factual accounts. So it, it allows the conversation to be a little more organic, if I can use that word, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's not very clinical of a question answer because I found that sometimes, even if it's a semi-structured interview, it, it often became that way. And, and this is not just coming in as a researcher, right? Because this context is a place yes. where there has been a lot of research conducted. So people are very aware of someone coming in and conducting research. And they often would ask me, um, oh, so you don't have a survey form. So you are asking us questions. 
but we already gave quest answers to this last researcher a few months ago so in that sense it was in it was also a learning of adapting to that context and the practicality of it's a two way conversation literally and i didn't want to also impose a certain way of conducting research so very often especially with with questions about land it 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 is a very sensitive it is a very political and it is a very emotional aspect in people's lives so when you talk about that it's it's unavoidable that people will go into stories about their forefathers or about how their connection with land is agriculture but it also means to them more than that the complexities came about through these active interviews as well so that was a very interesting um, process even as a researcher for me well that's all very interesting because you know as you, as you point out having a sensitivity and being able to to read the participant read the context and and respond accordingly is really important you might have a plan when you go into the field but what actually happens a lot of it has to be um allow, has has to enable you to be flexible enough to deal with what unfolds and the issue of participant fatigue i think is really important right in many mm. of these highly interesting study sites there is bound to be many researchers going through there and when they see you they they'll say oh here's another researcher what do we what do we tell them now that's different um to mm -hmm. what we told before and then going back into the field and returning the knowledge i think is particularly important very often researchers neglect that part of the equation but um that's a totally that's a that's a different topic altogether just a question relating to that your positionality did you did you think your positionality as someone who is familiar with the context who can speak the language, who, who understands local cultural nuances. Do you think that helped? Yes and no. I mean, in, in the sense of my positionality as, you know, being Indian and as you said, the language um, and also visually looking uh, mm. like I belong to that context, even though I don't, was very helpful. And then working with Hari was also very helpful because in context or in, in certain conversations, being a woman was a major disadvantage. Mm. So having um, Hari, of course, of course, because of his knowledge, but also his own identity as being a male and a, and a local person validated my presence and made that initial warming up a little more easier. Right. So I think that really, that was a very nice collaboration and and i think we both benefited from the process and we both learned a lot from that as well because for us for hari and me to then go back and reflect on what went well what didn't go well and why and then figuring out ways of dealing with that for the next time we meet someone it's a process and i think that was important to be cognizant that it's a process and and to be attentive to the details as well Yes. It also depends on who I spoke to. So if, if sometimes it was easier for me to have people engage with me when I was alone, if with a certain group of women yes. rather than with Hari. So I think that's something we recognize as well. And it's, of course, we know that culturally, but in the context of research, I think it's a very delicate balance of figuring out and being attentive and being sensitive to also what you pick up that's unsaid and, and body language um, and all of those um, aspects were important to think about and watch essentially. Mm. Indeed and my next question was going to be about the challenges you found doing this research and I think you preempted that and you've kind of covered it already because you know there are many challenges in field work and oftentimes 
understanding the social and cultural context is particularly important to be able to look beneath the surface, right? And what this is what uh, what is a hallmark of this paper is you've been able to unpack a lot of the nuances that researchers who are not familiar with context may not have seen in 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 their work. So congratulations again. As we return to the the paper itself, uh, what were the main findings from this work? In this paper, we focused on uh, two villages specifically because they actually gave a very good sense of the temporal and the spatial aspects of land use change and land use diversification in the context of ecotourism, conservation and rural realities. So in that process, the the two main findings were that in one of the villages in Tehran, there's been historical land use change since the beginning of, you know, ecotourism introduction in the context in the early 90s. And so that's when uh, for villages also, it was something that was very new and, and to have so much capital come from outside that land sales were very rapid. So it was a combination of outsiders seeing that as a great place to invest and set up their enterprises and for locals to uh, see it as a great way of going leaving the village to actually get that capital so of course the how that ended up working out was it's it's complex it's not a, again it's not a win-win as well because uh, maybe a win for a lot of the outside entrepreneurs but not all of the villagers were able to you know, make something of it or successfully migrate out um, or successfully invest in something else. That's part of it. And so the people who remained there, while some villagers who had capital have been able to set up their enterprises, they, a lot of the others have become labor in, in these hotels and other tourism enterprises. And in the other village, Kumer, what's seen is that the the influence of tourism has been slightly later, relatively. And it's what a lot of villagers have been telling me then was that they had seen how Tehran had had really um, been impacted and they don't want their own village to become that, right? So there is that temporal aspect in learning almost. And so as a, as a result, those villagers who've grown up exposed to tourism, who've actually worked in different enterprises and those who had capital became entrepreneurs and changed their own land use um, or partially land use, like setting up homestays, setting up hotels or adventure parks. And so in that sense, the land was not sold. Um, They're still holding on to the land because of the, the symbolic and emotional connections to land. So in that sense, it, a lot of them find it beneficial. And simultaneously, for those who work, or employees or a labor in the tourism establishment, they find it beneficial compared to leaving or out migrating uh, and working because even though the work is erratic and not necessarily always something that may give a lot of returns, it still makes sure that you stay close to your family, you're still close to your roots. And, and so there, there is a very, in that sense, it's, it's complex, but also a very clear connection to of course, their piece of land, but also that that land that they've grown up in. The findings really brought that out. And to be able to connect that to the impacts of ecotourism and, uh, and conservation-based tourism was important also, because I don't think we often think about the rural realities of conservation spaces as much, especially in the context of land, because that's, that's how we drew also from 
uh, critical agrarian and rural studies to to see how land use diversification takes place and if people shift from an agrarian livelihood to another livelihood what what are the nuanced decision making processes that go into this change or go into this shift right and then again that's a complex process for each villagers for some it may be easy because they have enough capital they can use part of their land for agriculture and the part other part for an enterprise so it's also something to take away is that the kind of diversification or change or land use sales that happen is also not necessarily uniform and that's that's i feel important to to keep focusing on because your socio economic standing in in the community defines a lot of that and defines your accessibility and defines uh, the ability to actually do something off the land and make something of it all these interconnections it, it was very evident as we understood more and more about the land relationships that keep kept coming out and also the flexibility of what you can do with your land is number one dependent on whether you even own land there were villagers who i spoke to who whose fathers and forefathers had actually sold the land and ended up working you know as labor or employees in the hotel that was built on previously what was their land so for them partial regret but now it 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 made them want to work uh, own their own souvenir shop for instance so it's almost like there has been of course historical influences for the rural landscape but also a lot of the uh, material and the symbolic textures that kept coming out on and on through the interviews but also to see the landscape that was pretty um, pretty different and vast variable in that sense Yeah so I think that that complexity was important for us to bring out. Yeah it's a very fascinating study and I and I'm sure you would agree that the work um is ongoing and there's there's still more to be done. And what you've talked about is really important for researchers who are going to read your paper because a lot of times in tourism research the ability to appreciate the multidisciplinary nature of the work is particularly important. In your case you didn't set out to study tourism as such. I imagine your focus was more on land and land use, but then tourism emerged as a, as, a, as an important part of this work, and we find that in 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 many countries, especially in developing country contexts, this idea that tourism is going to be more beneficial than current land use practices is quite a popular thing. In some research that I did in the Pacific Islands, people saw tourism as easy money. It was easier than working in the fields or on the fishing boats. you know you were able to earn a livelihood that didn't break your back as it were but then again you know what you've pointed out here is all the the nuances that go into the development of tourism plus also the potential to be vulnerable to the very changeable nature of it and of course bigger than this is uh, the effects of climate change on land use and on tourism and land use together Where does this all go now? Do you see tourism playing a bigger part in these communities or do you see them reverting to earlier land use practices? I remember that towards the end of my research and then when covid started I was speaking with you know all the villagers I'd spoken to and I've been in touch with and 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 for a lot of them there was a common response like oh yeah we always knew that tourism was as an industry a little vulnerable but this is 
a reality check again, right? Um, it's it's a reality check in the sense that yeah, I don't know what we're going to do if this never comes back, if if COVID continues. At the same time, I think that there the, the reality of growing up in a context where tourism has been dominant is something that you can't take away from and and the and the villagers also know that is something that they've either been exposed to they've worked in they've trained as guides it's not something that they can separate themselves too much from unless you out migrate if you're in that context for most of them it's figuring out within tourism as well what is a little more sustainable form of livelihood or or how to make it so that they are not dependent so much on outsiders and that's partly why having your own business for a lot of the villagers was the next step and i think that right now from my understanding it is still pretty dominant as an industry there and it is something that i think people are trying to navigate constantly and figure out what's the best in terms of of course family obligations but also how much capital do you need to yes to move away even or to move back into something that's subsistence life uh, livelihood which is agrarian livelihoods and yes. and that's tied again to to the other rural realities and, and and conservation policy because and this is why it was important to bring those conversations in this paper is that so many of the villagers have migrated from the hills in uttarakhand state to these plains area and this is historical this is when great grandfathers moved to this context to access better infrastructure better work to access better markets as well to sell their agricultural crops so to therefore then to see this tourism as a opportunity to engage closely with the market whilst knowing simultaneously that it is something that's may not be sustainable is not something that is fully dependent on it's something it's still something that is constantly being figured out i would say and it's a lot of the villages are trying to find ways of getting a footing that's as best as possible in that situation while completely being aware of the political economic social implications of it so there is there's no lack of awareness it's yes but it, it's a hard reality to make something make a decision in that in that context as well yes well revati that's that's all fascinating and i wish we could talk more about this this study i think this this whole idea that you've developed in this paper would make a a nice monograph of some description but nevertheless um one of the things that uh, for those who are going to read the paper next i wanted to just focus on some final um takeaways that revati highlighted revati and colleagues highlighted in the paper and i quote They say that decision making regarding land use or sale is driven by the need to diversify livelihood from agriculture which for many continues to give minimal productive returns livelihood diversification is triggered by wildlife caused damage to crops debt payments education weddings and aspirations for economic mobility the deepening dependence on the market contributes to villagers alienation from their land in ways that agriculture did not and creates greater vulnerability to national and global tourism trends this is a perennial problem in tourism that many researchers try to try to address so with that said revati congratulations on your phd congratulations on the paper congratulations on your appointment what's the name of the university you're at again thanks it's azim premji university mm-hmm. and it's and in bangalore yes it's in bangalore well fantastic Well, we look forward to publishing more of your work in future and and I, I wish you well in developing your um, research 
career and your academic career. And we thank you for um, bringing up some very, very valuable findings to the audience for Tourism Geographies. Thank you so much, Joseph, and thanks for having me. And I hope I've done justice to the paper and to all the co-authors as well. And thank you for the platform. You most certainly did, Ravita, you and your colleagues. Um, the editors and the reviewers of the journal gave you a hard time and had, had you jumped through many hoops and you did it with, uh, with good grace and, and eventually the product speaks for itself. So thank you once again. Take care of yourself. Thank you.